Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. Today we've got a really interesting conversation. We're going to talk with Evan Simone. He's an attorney who specializes in veterans benefits law and the responsiveness of legal systems to veterans and to their families. He's a fellow with the National Institute of Military Justice and a member of the National Institute of Corrections Justice Involved Veterans Network. He most recently represented veterans in his capacity as the visiting director Veterans and Service Members Legal Clinic, the University of Florida, Eleven College of Law. Before this, Evan was a staff attorney at the Veterans Legal Clinic at the Legal Services Center of Harvard Law School, where he provided legal services to underserved veterans in the community, included incarcerated veterans throughout the state of Massachusetts. He recently has retired after 20 years of uniformed service in the U.S. Army Judge Advocates General Corps, where he served in the reserves and on active duty. During his tours in Iraq, Germany, and at domestic military installations, Evan participated in sexual assault, complex death penalty, and other felony criminal cases involving PTSD as both a prosecutor and defense attorney. And I could go on and on and on to talk about what Evan's done and, and his background, but, you know, what we're going to talk about today is some of the research that he's done. And he's re- just recently written about the VA disability benefits for traumatic events, including military sexual trauma, race discrimination, and sexual and gender identity discrimination. So and we'll talk more, I mean, about who Evan is and, and what his background is, but it just makes me... I just want to jump in because when I think of the military, you know, I, I've always thought it's a community, it's a brotherhood. But I guess in every community and, and within every brotherhood, you do have discrimination. Evan, thanks so much for joining me today. Lee, thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. As I told you before, I've, I've been listening to a number of your podcasts, and I just appreciate the refreshing and innovative look that you're taking at, at issues that affect people and, and their well-being. Well, when you when you think about pe- issues that affect people, I mean, I, my dad was a vet. My dad um, died when I was 12 as a result of losing a lung in World War II. My stepdad was a vet. Vet. He was the most proud thing he had was his Purple Heart. So the veterans and and uh, you know it's such a big part of the population. But in so many ways, there's some unique needs associated with military families. And I mean, my dad wouldn't go anywhere except to the VA hospital. And we drove. <laughs> it was quite a drive. But that's where he felt comfortable. So I think we do need to talk about veterans. And I think we do need to talk about what benefits they're entitled to. And we need to talk about what's going on in the military, just like we talk about what's going on in the world. Yeah, there's so many issues. You know, I I think um, I think one of the great things uh, about the veteran population is you'll find so many veterans who actually want to give back after serving and want to help their fellow brothers and sisters and help them get a 
get to a place where they could live their lives productively, um, you know, not haunted by certain things that happened in their experience. I, I do want to emphasize, though, that every veteran's experience is unique. Uh, it, it, it could even depend on the quality of leadership that a veteran had while assigned in a particular place, right? If there were great leaders who were supportive, maybe something that we would consider traumatizing might not be as traumatizing because of the fact that there was like a support network on the opposite side of the spectrum, the absence of leadership, the absence of a good network of support can have devastating effects. And, and that's some of the things that I've, I've tried to look at more recently. Well, you know, when I think of the military and I think of trauma, I think of the war, you know, what happens. They're there at war. They're there to defend our country. But, you know, I've worked with a lot of veterans and I've worked with a lot of veterans' families. And it's not about the the trauma from the war. It's more about the trauma of just, you know, existing. And when they come home, being able to re-engage with life. Yeah, you know, one of the, that makes me think about a a recent, uh, you know, a recent understanding that, you know, the, the military puts so much into basic training and, you know, it's, you can really call that a rewiring of the brain, right? You're, you're, you're getting indoctrinated into a distinct culture and, and military, you know, being in the military is definitely cultural. You've got different vocabulary for things, different values, right? Each, each of the services has specific values associated with it. And, you know, there's also this idea of trying to distinguish you as something other than a civilian because of the responsibilities, because of the need to be selfless and to uh, be loyal to your unit and risk your life. Uh, there's there's definitely a message coming to our, our service members as they enter the military. Uh, this is not civilian existence. This is something different with a different set of rules and a different set of values. And And a big challenge is after living in an environment like that and, and learning how to survive and excel in that environment, you don't really get boot camp and how to go back into the community. Uh, and definitely not as intense and um, reinforced as you do going in. So that that's a big problem. You know, one of the biggest concerns that, that I hear from veterans who have left the military is they, they, they feel so disconnected. Like you were saying, they feel, um, they feel like they're missing that mission that was so important and the camaraderie and knowing that someone uh, would take a bullet for you if they had to. And, uh, and, and upon leaving, the, the, they see uh, things at a slower pace with, with, uh, with different values being emphasized, and it, it becomes very much a challenge for a lot of veterans to make that transition. And it, I can clearly see how. So, you know, you've got – you've lived all on all different sides of the military. You've been right in the middle of it. And what prompted you to do some research and what prompted you to to look into the, the veterans? Yeah, you know, in 2015 is when I made the decision to leave active duty. And one of the reasons why is that I, I had seen so much 
about the impact of military service and what happens when things don't work the way they're supposed to, especially with the uh, sexual trauma or, um, you know, uh, involvement in the military justice system where someone's like uh, 18, 19 and leaving with an other than honorable discharge that'll affect them for the rest of their life. Um, th- those are the kinds of things that led me to want to represent veterans and help them better adjust to society and to try to use my experience to do that. And so I really did um, uh, do outreach to veter- veterans who, who are in populations that haven't been able to get the help they need where, where you actually need to seek them out for whatever reason. Um, and sometimes I could just be distrust of the VA system. So many veterans have heard things, been promised things, and then they go and they invest their time and they're denied or they're turned away. And it, it, it just leaves this sense of betrayal sometimes where, where it's hard to gain that back. So I, w- I was, uh, providing services to veterans who needed them uh, and were homeless and, and, and in a rough spot. And I started to hear uh, an interesting, uh, you know, trend in, in what the veterans were saying, a lot of them, especially veterans from uh, racial minority groups and, and other groups. And a lot of it was, even though I went to combat, what really affected me the most was the way I was discriminated against while I served. And I was thinking, you know, all the training and all the cases and all the things you do to become a lawyer who represents veterans, there's nothing that talks about race discrimination or other types of discrimination. And if if you look at the VA rules, it's very clear that if you have a mental health condition that can be traced back to military service and that you are still now experiencing the symptoms of that health condition, uh, if you can show the the nexus between your military service and the health condition, uh, then you can get uh, service-connected for disability benefits, which oftentimes can include compensation as well. And I was thinking, nothing prevents a veteran from putting in a claim if they've been traumatized and have a mental health condition that's due to discrimination they experienced. The question is, how do you do that? And, and what's happening at the VA when someone does? There was absolutely nothing available to, to give those indications. And that's why I decided to spend a lot of time looking into this very issue. So what was the first step? Well, in an ideal world, we would be able to look at the regional offices all around the country. I think there's 57 of them right now. And if you file a VA claim as a veteran, it usually gets routed to a regional office that handles the claim. Now, sometimes they've, they've allocated certain claims to different jurisdictions based on you know how busy it's how busy it is but in these regional offices is where you have adjudicators who gather evidence who review it um when someone says i have a mental health condition they're looking at medical records from when the person first came into the military any mental health evaluations experiences during military service and then even treatment and issues that have come up especially diagnoses of mental health conditions after military service. So it's a very comprehensive review. And then the adjudicator will look at the evidence and decide whether or not the person has met the regulatory requirements for service connection of a disability. And I could go into these terms in more detail and just to give you an orientation if you'd like. Well, for our listeners out there, you know, there are, there's maybe some that those terms will resonate with. So briefly, that might be beneficial. 
Sure. So, you know, if, if we were look, to look at the regulations, there's there's like a, a number of laws out there that say, well, what is a veteran? And you have to meet the qualification of being considered a veteran to be eligible for VA benefits. And some of that would be uh, potentially a minimum time of military service. So, for example, if someone hasn't served on active duty for 24 months, then they may not meet the standard, of course, Prior terms of service, you know, they, they don't have as long, but over the years, the rules have changed. So there's usually a requirement for a minimum term of service. There's also a requirement for a, uh, a discharge characterization of a certain level that's, that's considered to be not dishonorable conditions. And there's a lot of confusion over how to decide that because of, of different rules. But basically, if someone has a general discharge, or an honorable discharge, those are considered to be under honorable conditions, right? If someone has a general, they'll lose a GI Bill eligibility, but they'll generally be uh, entitled to a mental health treatment and disability compensation for any uh, disorders that get rated and service-connected. Um, and then if you've got someone with an other than honorable discharge or a punitive discharge, the likelihood of getting any kind of benefits dramatically decreases, and that, that creates a concern. So basically, service connection just means if, if you get a grant of service connection, that's the VA saying, yes, you have a health condition today that was caused or aggravated by military service. Uh, there's other ways to do it. Too. There's presumptions. There's there's other terms, but but these are the most common ones is it's either caused by or aggravated by military service. And you could have a service connection of zero, which means you're not going to be getting any disability compensation, but a service connection rating of zero still means service connection and can entitle someone to um, a different package of benefits, even, even though it says zero. But once you start getting over 10%, there's actually a monetary value assigned to the disability compensation, uh, it, and it goes all the way up to 100%, uh, which, which is, I believe, over $3,000 a month these days. So it can be very meaningful uh, to a veteran to get that. Uh, we, we should note that um, it's not income-based. So it doesn't, you, you know, unlike Social Security, you don't have to um, have a job that pays nothing or be unemployed in order to get VA benefits. It's not based on income, right? So someone can be making above the poverty line and doing quite well and still be entitled to those benefits. Um, technically, you are able to apply for benefits at, uh, at any time. Uh, so there's, there's the ability to go in and get them. There are some concerns about, you know, um, for existence, for instance, Camp Lejeune, for example, but that's, that, that's not right now. Those cases are being heard in federal court, but there are timelines. If you want to get some benefits, that's not through the VA though. The, the Camp Lejeune contamination lawsuits are actually in federal court. Uh, the VA may have given those benefits, but, uh, but, uh, the, the court can proceed separately because it's actually a lawsuit, uh, against, uh, the military rather than, uh, uh, through the VA compensation system. And so so someone who's service-connected and can establish a disability rating can really have life-changing benefits, life-changing benefits that can do so much for them. Um, and that's why this is really important. I, I would say there's a symbolic reason, especially when we start thinking about discrimination, 
someone who has experienced trauma and and has has been betrayed and and has lost trust in the system when that system comes around and says we're going to recognize that this was your experience and we're going to try to do something about it the the mere process of getting validated that 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 the struggle is being recognized can have a a great impact on well-being that may even go far beyond monetary compensation. I know that's especially true in cases of military sexual trauma, where a lot of uh, victims who have been retaliated against, who have been, um, you know, disbelieved, pressured not to make complaints, you know, it almost feels like uh, they have been, um, you know, the enemy, right? So when you finally have the VA saying, yes, we recognize that you suffered this and, and we have a responsibility to help you heal from it. Um, that makes a big difference. And that's also a reason why I conducted this research. Cause I think a lot of veterans do not know that they're eligible to apply uh, for the benefits related to discrimination. And uh, it may make a huge difference, especially if they've been living with the consequences for several years or decades. Have you found that people are reluctant to go after those benefits? Is there, is there a level of shame in there? I, you know, I, I, there's, I think there's a level of re-trauma whenever you get into traumatic experiences. Uh, and when it's, you know, the, the VA, um, this isn't trauma from the enemy. Um, and it's funny because there, there was, it's not really funny, it's pathetic, but there was a, a federal lawsuit where some uh, sexual assault victims said, hey, um, it was like someone who was my peer became the enemy enemy when I was raped. So can, can I get benefits for PTSD with the presumption that it's harm from the enemy that I feared? And the court said, no, no, uh, th- that presumption is for when you're involved in a hostile enemy, enemy or terrorist attacks, but it can't be someone wearing the same uniform. But I think they call this personal trauma uh, under the regulations. When someone says, I have PTSD because of a traumatic event from somebody else's hands who wasn't the enemy. That's called personal trauma. And I think personal trauma, when someone has to explain how it's impacted them and go into the details of it and get diagnosed for it and keep re- rehashing it over and over again, it can it can raise the you said shame it, but it can raise it can raise the recollections, the memories that can tr- get triggered in other ways. And so it's, it's a very tedious process. And then, and then even the thought of what if they say no? What if they don't believe me? Um, not wanting to be let down once again after a chain of, of, of betrayals, uh, it prevents a lot. It prevents a lot of people from doing this. But, but I, I do believe that, um, that it's not a common thing to apply for these, um, these benefits. For discrimination, and I don't, I don't know if if veterans even know that that's a basis to get compensated, a basis to get service connected, and and even to get therapeutic therapy and help and free services. Um, so I hope that helps. Well, I, I think it does, and I think you know a lot of times people do have benefits, but they don't even they don't even know that they have them, and then once they figure out they do then it's it's almost overwhelming. Oh my gosh, now I have access to this. How do I go how do I go about it? You know, what's what's the best way? So, when working with veterans, 
the is there any would you say they're more open to receive or would you say that they're more guarded i i think the i think that the VA, you know, has a responsibility once you file a claim. They can't just, even though a lot of veterans may feel this way, they can't just uh, throw throw it in the trash or something. They have a duty to assist someone who's applying. It's supposed to be non-adversarial. It's supposed to be a process where the VA actually is supposed to work with the veteran uh, to ensure that the veteran uh, get gets a fair shake at, at presenting the evidence that supports them. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you might have heard this, I don't know, but the standard for uh, getting VA benefits is unlike other kind of uh, hearings and disability systems. Uh, most of them have a standard of, um, you know, to prove it, you have to show, uh, you know, more, more, than, more likely than not, you know, like a preponderance of the evidence, right? But in this case, what the VA says is, it's it's a standard of equipoise, meaning if you can show the evidence that you have a condition or that the condition is related to military service or it's at a certain level of impairment, all the veteran needs to show that it is as likely as not that the standard is met. And that's that's enough to give the benefit to the veteran. So they, they call that the benefit of the doubt rule. So theoretically, it's supposed to be even uh, less of a hassle to apply and get benefits for VA conditions. When we get into mental health conditions, however, especially PTSD, the VA has rules that are different that add obstacles. And that's one of the things that I became acutely aware of as I conducted this research. Well, when I think of the VA, I think of the government, and I think that that's, it's very complex. It's it, There's not a direct route in when I think of you know, clients that I've worked with just trying to get their VA benefits figured out or get their educational benefits started can can be somewhat overwhelming. The oh yeah, look- yeah, there's there's both statutes which are federal laws created by Congress, and then there's also regulations that the VA secretary creates, and those things are changing on a regular basis. And to read thousands upon thousands of pages and understand what's going on is is a big challenge so one of the one of the wonderful resources that are out there for veterans are free veteran service officers like the american legion the disabled veterans of america the am vets uh, iraq and afghanistan veterans of america we could go on forever because there's so many of them but the whole goal is uh, they can go for free and and get help from someone who can help assemble their file, help obtain records, help them fill out their forms and send them in. But that's still challenging because these, the, the, there, again, there's no guidance out there on discrimination and it raises the need for specific evidence. Wow. For people out there that heard that and, and are going, wow, how do I find that person? How do I feel, find that advocate for me? How do they? I think um, there's two types. There's congressionally chartered veteran service organizations, and then there's also non-chartered ones, but that still exist without Congress supporting them. And those lists are available. I would just plug it into Google and, and write a list of congressionally chartered or, or veteran service organizations, and you should be able to find them. 
if you go to the websites for these organizations, a lot of them uh, have like VFW and uh, DAV. They have like a portal where you can put in your a zip code and find the nearest office and then call up and ask to speak to a, a claims officer. Uh, other times, some people may want to go to an attorney. Um, a lot of times when they appeal a denial, it gets more legal. And that's when you see attorneys getting involved. But um, the VSOs are very good because they're they're free. Oh, that is, that is great to know that there are free services out there for people to tap into. Because I think that sometimes, you know, we want help, but we don't know how to get And, and if you're if you're in a PTSD state, you've got some depression, you've got some anxiety, and they're just all you see are the difficulties that are facing you uh, when you're trying to raise the mental health claims. So has it when we talk about the difficulties, what's what are some of them that people have to go through for discrimination? If someone's saying I have PTSD, that all of the sudden changes the rules they apply. Um, the PTSD standard is more demanding than if you say I have depression from this or I have anxiety or or you name it. PTSD is designed to kind of, the way the VA treats it, they kind of mirror the actual diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, they call it the Bible of the psychiatric community, right? That's that's how all the, at least in, in the United States, how all of the mental health disorders are classified. And so you have to meet certain criteria in order to be Um, considered as having that disorder. And for the DSM, it's had some changes, but for a long time, there's been this thing called traumatic stressor. And even if we look at the earlier definitions, the most recent definition of PTSD comes out of 2013, the DSM-5. PTSD first was created as a disorder and recognized as such in 1980 in the DSM-3. And I do want to say we should really think about that date because it was largely because of the experiences of veterans who had been in Vietnam and traumatized by that, um, that ongoing war that there was a recognition by the psychiatric community that we, we need to find a way to, to, to uh, have a diagnosis for this. They used to call it post-Vietnam syndrome. Um, wow. So that, that's, such an important, that's such an important point. And I, we've got one minute before we go to break. So I don't want, sure. I don't want that point to be lost because that changing the way it was defined, recognizing that point in time, I think is very important. Yeah. And, and we should, you know, one of the things that's out there and I know we've got to go to break is uh, there's other kinds of disorders that have come about that are military related that are kind of new and, and, and the, the existing definitions don't really capture these new disorders that are coming from military service. So that's something we should think about. That is a lot to think about. And I think I encourage our listeners to stay with us. We'll come back after we take a break. We'll be back and we'll learn more about that and what you as a veteran need to know. We'll be back after these messages. 
you heard about the Australian town named Eggs and Bacon Bay? Some residents want a name change for the sake of healthier diets. But Eggs and Bacon Bay isn't the only culinary namesake in Australia. There's also Roast Beef Creek and Leg of Lamb Bank. But the goofy names don't stop with food. Care to take a dip in Convict Creek or a swim in Little Stinking Lagoon? Actually, Eggs and Bacon Bay wasn't named for breakfast. It was named after a species of wildflowers known as Eggs and Bacon. What do you call the business of naming things? Onomastics. Some residents are scrambling to put the kibosh on the name change because they're worried people won't know how to find their town on a map. What's the word for the inability to remember a correct word? Lethologica. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back. And before break, we were talking about PTSD and how it kind of evolved. And World War One, it was called, you know, shell shock. And then World War Two, it was general fatigue. And then it kind of just disappeared until the Vietnam War. And the people that were coming back had such unique needs that it really needed to be addressed. And that's that is when changes were made and, and what PTSD is. And I find that just it it blows my mind because I can remember growing up, you know, some people were just terrified that they would that they would be they would have to go to war. And some people were there for how, you know, they would go back three or four times. So it's and I wonder, did they go back because that became their norm? What do you think about that? Again, I, I want us to uh, not fall into a very common temptation to try to say there's one experience that defines everything. And, and I think I think that a, a lot of times veterans suffer from stereotypes um, that are 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 not accurate, right? So even though a substantial portion of veterans comes back with 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 needs, unique needs. Some of them have PTSD. Some of them have traumatic brain injury. Some of them have these other mental health concerns that are are not even classified as disorders, yet they're having an impact. But I do want to highlight something that many, many veterans come back without experiencing those types of issues. And even those who do have those issues, they experience the symptoms differently. One of the biggest areas where the stereotypes are out of control is this perception that veterans are violent in nature and that those who have PTSD are coming back and becoming violent and are a danger to the community. And and that has been studied, and it's just it, it's not true. But you know what we what it's important to realize is there are some who do come back, and their, their symptoms do have um, you know anger, impulse control. Certain acts can can lead from the symptoms. So it's it's not like it's it's something to be ignored, but definitely not to say all veterans are experiencing this either. So. You know, I, I think we need to be careful, um, but certainly for those who have these issues, it's of concern to get them the help they need, whether it's uh, violence or whether it's symptoms that uh, affect their ability to survive um, in the community. Well, and I think you're right. There, there are 
stereotypes that that exist and and we do want to see with clarity what we're dealing with so when you started working with the the va for the benefits is it just for the veterans or is it for the veterans families and how how did that interaction what was that flow well that's a that's a great point you know (laughs) um in a lot of cases, and, and I've, I've heard this from veterans who've, who've contemplated uh, taking their lives and self-harm, that the thing that keeps them going is the family in a lot of cases. And I've even heard stories of veterans who took like pictures of their family and, and kept staring at them, putting them very close to fight the urge to, to self-harm. Uh, so it can be very powerful. And, and, and I think the research shows that if you can incorporate a family treatment, family trauma, you know, treatment into the process that that is going to enhance the veteran's ability to overcome uh, the consequences of these disorders and heal a lot faster. Right. And, and, you know, that, 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 that's a piece that's sometimes missing. Um, The VA uh, does not have a lot of robust programs specifically for families of of veterans. Uh, They're getting better but the the vet centers and and they're different from the VA hospitals the vet centers came about after Vietnam specifically with the goal of helping combat veterans readjust to society they actually counsel family members too for free um so there there's a different bundle of benefits that you can get and some of them are not directly from the VA hospitals but those vet center programs do a marvelous job or a, a far better job of really bringing the family unit together. I, I will say that if someone has dependents and they're rated for a disability, the, the, uh, they get additional compensation to account for that. So that's one way that the VA does try to help with the family members, but um, you're absolutely right. The family is is crucial. And, and I got to say this, you know, the, the researchers who look at families of veterans say that the signature injury of military families is secondary traumatic stress, which means that if you have a veteran returning who's experiencing symptoms of a, a mental health disorder from combat, the family members can pick up uh, symptoms also in themselves and how they're trying to adapt. And, you know, there, there's these studies of intergenerational transmission of trauma. And in Australia, they really captured uh, that uh, the children and grandchildren of Vietnam veterans who participated in Australia have discernible, like you can find it, um, mental health conditions that seem to be inherited in part from exposure to the symptoms and, and, and just the secondary trauma of the veteran, if that veteran's not treated and, and experiencing those symptoms. Wow. So you've done a lot of research and you've looked at, at really different things, but what do you want our listeners to know about the research that you've conducted? Well, you know, I, 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 want our, I want the listeners to know that, first of all, the military is a place and, and, and I know that the aim is righteous and there's anti-discrimination policies and uh, equal opportunity officers and, and now a growing recognition of, of ways that the military can be discriminatory. But I think we need to remember that certain things that happened in the military uh, along the lines of discrimination have been 
very, very impactful on lots of veterans. Uh, I, I, you know, the obvious one would be the segregation of the military by race up until like the executive order in 1950. And it took a while for some of the services to implement that. Right. So you, you had racial, you know, segregation and and treatment, different treatment based on race going along with it. Uh, that that is an area that I know that our veterans are getting older, but uh, we've still got veterans now who experience that. And that's something that that uh, that has an impact um, and can have a devastating impact. And then shortly after the assassination of Dr. King in 1968, there there were so many accounts of race riots and discriminatory events going on. It was happening in Germany. It was happening in bases in the United States. It was happening on board ships. Uh, the Kitty Hawk uh, is the most the most known, the air, aircraft carrier, where for, for days there were literally groups who were attacking other groups based on race with iron pipes and there were deaths and people getting thrown overboard and it was race based uh, but there were also cross burnings there were confederate flags being hoisted up on bases in vietnam there were just there there was tremendous um conflict within the ranks and and uh uh, that's important. And I don't only want us to focus on, um, you know, uh, black soldiers, but I also want us to think about Asian and Pacific Islander uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines also, because especially uh, when we were at war in uh, Korea and also in Vietnam, um, there are many accounts from a psychologist named uh, Dr. Liu, who studied this for the VA, Um a lot of times these service members were discriminated against based on their physical appearance and they were they were pretty much treated like the enemy based on their physical features and there's there's just accounts of, of in Vietnam for example where they would always they would take the Asian uh, Pacific Islander soldiers and make them act as the enemy when they did their training where they were simulating combat and they were called the names of the enemy that they, they that were associated with the enemy. And there's some just horrendous accounts of that. So the, these kinds of incidents where it was uh, profound, it was pervasive in the military, truly um, are, are things that have, for many veterans, lasted for decades and and affected veterans in different ways so I, I, that's one way uh, one thing i'd like us to think about the other thing i'd like us to think about is the uh, uh discrimination based on uh, sexual orientation gender identity um don't ask don't tell um you know between 1945 and when uh, don't ask don't tell was repealed in 2011 there's an estimated 14 uh, 114,000 of veterans who were kicked out of the military based on um, that regulation. And in some cases, there were also jail sentences. Uh, and, and in many of these cases, there were um, discharges, like we talked about earlier, that were other than honorable that kind of prevented these veterans from getting benefits uh, just just based on that finding or that, that suspicion. Um, what I want us to think about, though, is the estimate that approximately a million veterans uh, who, who identify as LGBTQ served. Um, and uh, those who didn't get kicked out, 
may have still been under pressure to conceal their identities. And, and, uh, you know, there's, there's studies of, of the, uh, behaviors that really were harmful, like, uh, you know, purposefully attacking people, uh, who had the, the, the traits or who they, they, um, suspected in order to cast uh, suspicion away from themselves. Right. So having to engage in the same kind of discrimination that was at issue. And for a lot of, uh, veterans in that group, um, that had a tremendous effect. So, so the point is I, I want our, uh, I want our listeners to know that uh, that there's many veterans out there who were potentially affected by um, discrimination in the military and that this is, in fact, compensable. But uh, more importantly, if you want to get these benefits, uh, know what kind of evidence is out there and know what's happening, the trends of how they're treating it at the VA. And that's what my research was was centered on. That's that's. Great. I mean, because you've done a lot of research, you looked at the race, you looked at the sexual discrimination, um, you've looked at them both. And what are the differences? Are they? Did you see a lot of commonalities between the the, the way the VA handled the discrimination claims? Well, I, I do want to say this. Remember, we talked about challenges. The VA regional offices do not report on the nature of the claims that are coming in on this detail. So there, there's no way presently for anyone to find out how many claims did you get at the uh, California regional office, uh, raising discrimination? What was the mental health disorder that was claimed? What kind of evidence and what was the outcome? That's just not possible. Um, and so I had to rely on the second best alternative. And that is that uh, there's a middle agency where if you get denied at the regional office, you can appeal to that. And that's called the Board of Veterans Appeals, where a judge, act, a veterans law judge, an administrative judge actually looks at the entire file. And again, if there was an error, the judge decides, was there an error or not? And I was able to find a classification. You know, there's a million decisions or more in there in the repository of all those decisions and their electronic decisions. And I was able to get uh, the Board of Veterans Appeals own like a basic, you know, when something comes in and they enter it in the system, they kind of generally describe it. So I was able to find cases between, I think, around 1993 to 2019. Cases where someone says, I'm appealing a denial of service connection for a mental health disorder. That's as far as I could get. I then had to take those cases and and there were pretty much 123,000 of those. I had to work with artificial intelligence, machine learning experts to develop algorithms to go in and classify the content of these 100,000 plus cases and find the ones that dealt with discrimination claims. I'm going to spare you the technical language, but ultimately, at the end of the day, there were 118 cases involving uh, sexual orientation, gender identity discrimination. 15 of those were combined with race, but then there were 536 race discrimination cases. So when I was able to isolate that, I was able to do statistical analysis, look at trends, all these other things. And and that's where I'm drawing the data uh, that I'd like to share with you. 
So it's it may not be the best indicator, but it's 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 as close as we're going to get. And for other reasons I can discuss later, a lot of judges did not describe the discrimination in enough detail for 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 anyone to know what happened with it. And that was a really concerning thing that I saw. And it almost seems like maybe they don't want people to find out about these trends because it might not look too good if there's a bias in the in in, in looking at particular judges and decisions. So may, maybe the goal is to leave it obscure. Uh, I don't know, but it sure did seem like that with some of the language. Uh, but I can tell you some basic uh, trends that I was able to spot, if you'd like. Okay, let's. You know, I would like okay. that. So I, I kind of tried to chart, you know, over time from '93 to 2019. Let's look at all of the combined discrimination cases, uh, 653 of them, and let's look at how many were granted, how many appeals were granted where they said, yes, this is service-connected, or denied, where they said, we're going to uphold the denial that the regional office made. And what became clear is between about, you know, 1999-ish to 2015, it's very clear that discrimination cases were getting denied way more than getting approved. Around 2015, the trend changed, and you're able to see how about as many are getting denied as are getting approved. And then in, as of 2017, there's a large increase, and it's almost like it flipped around from the prior trend and now more were getting approved than denied. And I think that's interesting because things are changing over time. For instance, in 2011, you have the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And what the research showed was that even for the ones dealing with race discrimination, more were getting approved where they claimed race and not sexual orientation after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell than before it. I can't tell you that it caused it, but there, that's certainly something worth looking at. So for both race and sexual orientation, gender identity discrimination, many more getting approved than denied after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2011. So that had a big impact. You know, again, you know, the statisticians will be the first to tell you that uh, it doesn't really speak to cause, but you just look at relationships. But if I were to infer something, which is certainly not a a formal conclusion, I I would think that this might be an indication that judges were becoming more attuned to the impact of discrimination after after the recognition that a practice in the military had a discriminatory effect. And, and why it was being repealed. And that may have actually changed the way judges were looking at all kinds of claims of discrimination. So that that's one conclusion that I think could be supported, but I can't say that for sure. Um, I can also tell you that when you asked about the differences, I had assumed going into this, one of my hypotheses was that Oh, race discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination are very different, right? Because you can usually see someone's, you know, uh, racial, uh, you know, group based on on physical attributes. But when it comes to 
you know, someone's identity, right? It, 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 you know, it's, it's a lot harder to pin down and accurately estimate. Right. So, so I I was assuming, Oh, it's going to be different. The dynamics of this are going to be different. You know, you, you can't really conceal your identity in the military if, if you're black or white, for example, but uh, if you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, identity concealment is one of the most common ways that veterans tried to survive and not be drummed out of the military. And that meant pretending they were something they weren't, which, which can oftentimes have serious consequences. So I thought uh, these aren't going to be like the same. But when I looked at what I found was the differences in the way that these things were approved and denied was like 1%. So it really does seem like a similar kind of rationale was being applied to both types of cases. I I thought that was interesting. Now, obviously, there were way fewer sexual orientation discrimination, um, gender identity discrimination cases that I was able to find. Right. So um, by by hundreds. But still, uh, uh, this was a comparison of the proportion that were approved and denied, which was, again, one percent off. So do you consider your research to be done or is it, are you still actively pursuing it? You know, there's different ways to pursue it. What what I kind of did was I, again, I didn't have a lot of resources to do this and, and didn't, and didn't have uh, grants or anything. So I, 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 I did work, I hired research assistants to work for me. And what, what, what I did was I, I tried to classify these cases and look at trends and what we can do with this data. You know, they, they have these things called jury verdict reporters, which if you go to a, a, a personal injury attorney, let's say you say, I want to know uh, for someone who tripped and fell in a Burger King or whatever, whatever the place was in this way. How are those cases getting settled? How much is the case worth? And usually there's companies that aggregate results of litigation so that attorneys and others can get a quick idea of what's at issue in the case and how much it's worth. I believe that um, not only for this, but for other things, but but let's just look at discrimination. We can certainly look at the cases and, and kind of do a summary of the key facts and outcomes that can like if someone has a similar issue, they can look in that, find a similar case and just get an idea of the kinds of issues that came up. What are the biggest hurdles, things that can help inform them? And and that's what we need in an area where there's little to no guidance. And so, for example, I, I, want, I want to tell you this is. The most commonly claimed disorder for discrimination was trauma and stressor, which is PTSD. 60% of all of the uh, the discrimination claims claimed that PTSD resulted from it. And do you know that PTSD was the largest number that represented denials? Wow. That's So it's the that's... most claimed, it's also the most denied and and actually the ones where veterans are getting approved is when they can show depression, anxiety, those kinds of conditions in relation to the disorder. And I think part of the reason is, again, that stressor requirement, right? So VA regulations say 
even though you don't have to do it for other disorders, for PTSD, you have to prove that the that a traumatic event actually happened. This the 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 stressor event, and and that's something they look at and they say we will not accept just a veteran saying this happened to me. You have to corroborate it with independent evidence to show that it actually happened. And for other disorders, you don't have to prove that, but that kind of makes it different. And, you know, it's, it, uh, in, in the case of combat, there's a presumption out there that says if you were in a hostile, you know, uh, environment, if you were deployed to a combat zone and you, you say, I had fear of enemy or terrorist attack, that's enough. And they'll say, we're going to presume that the stressor event happened. Because it used to be that combat veterans had to show, oh, here's my combat infantry badge, or here's my award, or here's where it says my injury came from the battlefield. And a lot of veterans who had PTSD from Vietnam and earlier weren't able to get benefits because sometimes that information was lost. And and so many were getting denied that they actually went in and said, you know what, it's too much of a burden to prove, so we're going to have to make it easier because it's just not fair. And well, people you know, have said you should. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's not fair. It, it's not. And we've got about three minutes left. And I'd like for you to, to okay. just what are what are the takeaways that we want our listeners to have? What, you I, know, I think that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I think number one takeaway is, yes, this these these disorders can be compensated. Very important to get a mental health professional to do an evaluation of the discriminatory trauma and to explain that. And don't only have them look at PTSD, have them look at all of the mental health conditions that are suffered from and to, to if they find that it's connected to the discrimination, to actually claim more than just the PTSD. That's probably the biggest thing. And, and you know, it's, it, these aren't common and a lot of, if you just go to the VA, the CMP evaluators, the compensation and pension evaluators are going to tr- use their standard to look at this. And in some of the cases, I actually found them say, this isn't the typical way that uh, that mental health conditions happen, especially with PTSD. You, They've found cases where even though death or serious bodily harm were not involved, the person still had PTSD. And the VA normally would say, well, unless it meets that threshold for something that's like a life threat scenario, you're never going to get there. But the VA has actually found that. And that's because of the quality of the mental health evaluation and how carefully they look at the facts. So and that's, so a, that's one such of the an important things, point, to, you know, to end on. We've got about a minute. And for people out there that want to find you, are you on LinkedIn? Um, or do you do Facebook? Do you do YouTube? Where can they find you? LinkedIn is the best place and uh, the publications are free. Uh, One of them is in the Administrative Law Review. uh, And if you go to the current edition of the Administrative Law Review, which is volume 74, you'll find it in PDF form. It's free and you can always reach out to me and uh, we can continue the conversation. And that's Evan Simone, S-E-A-M-O-N-E. Evan, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate your legal expertise and the work you're doing for our veterans.
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.